Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Mark and we find ourselves uh, continuing to make our way through Mark chapter 13, uh, the the most extensive uh, teaching section in Mark's Gospel known as the Olivet Discourse. Our focus this morning will be on Mark 13, verses 26 through 31. I'm going to begin reading at verse 24 to fill out the context a little bit, but... Our focus, again, will be especially on verses 26 through 31. Let us hear God's holy word. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Dear friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's seek the Lord's preaching of his word this day. Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you that you have spoken to us in the Holy Scriptures We ask, Lord, that you would make us attentive. We ask that you would give us wisdom and insight as we seek to understand this portion of your God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. We ask that by your spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts to behold wondrous things from your word. And Lord, we do ask that you would guide me, your servant, that I might speak forth your word with clarity and with faithfulness. And we ask, Lord, that we might all be built up in Christ. We pray that the name of Jesus would be exalted in the preaching of your word this day. We ask all these things, Heavenly Father, through Christ our Lord and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you can see uh, in your... Bulletin, the title of my sermon this morning is Coming in the Clouds and the Fig Tree. And the key words to be listening for, quite a few of them, are prophecy, Jerusalem, temple, clouds, ascension, king, Messiah, angels, and fig tree. Well, dear friends, as we've been considering in recent Lord's Days, on recent Lord's Days, there is no shortage of Bible prophecy teachers and prophecy speculators out there in the Christian world today. And there are few passages of Holy Scripture that are so mishandled to fuel prophecy speculations more than our Lord's teachings here in this section of Scripture known as the Olivet Discourse. On this Lord's Day morning, we continue our study through Mark's account of our Lord's Olivet Discourse, which Jesus delivered to a group of his disciples during the last week of his life, the week leading up to his crucifixion, which is typically called Passion Week. Now, in recent sermons on the the Olivet Discourse, 
I've been making the point that there is, I believe, good reason within the context of this discourse itself to believe that in this prophecy, Jesus is primarily predicting the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which took place 40 years after he made this prediction in 70 AD under General Titus and the Roman armies under his charge. In other words, most of what Jesus predicts in his Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in the first century, at least the bulk of what he predicts up through verse 31. Now, a major contextual reason for believing this that is that in this teaching, Jesus is answering his disciples' questions, particularly and precisely on when the Jerusalem temple would be destroyed. So if we go back to the very beginning of chapter 13, and let me just quickly read through the first four verses. Uh, remember, Jesus had had some disputes with the religious uh, leaders within the temple precincts. And then when he left the precincts, we read that this occurred. It says, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And indeed, uh, the, the complex of the first century Jerusalem temple was indeed marvelous. It was a marvelous architectural wonder. Verse 2, here's where Jesus makes the prophecy, the prediction. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, this is why this teaching is called the Olivet Discourse. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And so, again, what is the context here? Well, Jesus had made a prediction, a prophecy that was literally fulfilled about 40 years after he made this prophecy in verse two, that the temple would be destroyed, that not one stone would be left upon another. And what do the disciples ask him? They say, when will these things be? When will this happen? And so this is a contextual clue that will guide us and help us to interpret uh, our teach the teachings of our Lord in this chapter. Another major reason for believing that the bulk of this prophecy of the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in the first century is because Jesus explicitly tells us in verse 30 that all of the things that he predicts up until that point in his discourse will take place within the generation then alive. As Jesus, if you skip down to verse 30, Jesus says, truly, in the, in the Greek it is amen, truly or verily, I say to you, I the Son of God incarnate, Jesus is speaking with his divine authority. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The words of Jesus are more certain than the continuance of heaven and earth. However, as we've considered on the last Lord's Day, Due to the teachings and influence of popular Bible prophecy speculators, many believers today have trouble seeing how some of the language that Jesus uses in this passage could possibly be referring to the destruction of the first century Jerusalem temple instead of predicting our Lord's future second advent. The future advent of Christ being an event which is still obviously in our future. 
This particular section of the Olivet Discourse with its language of astronomical disturbances and cosmic upheavals of of uh, stars falling from the sky and the uh, the moon and the sun being darkened and all of that. Uh, certainly, along with uh, Christ coming in the clouds, this kind of language seems to many of our fellow believers today to be referring clearly to our Lord's future second advent, not to some first century event like the destruction of the temple. Now, on the last Lord's Day, we gave some in-depth consideration to this language of astronomical phenomena and cosmic upheavals, especially as this language is often used in the Old Testament prophets. And what we discovered by comparing scripture with scripture is that this kind of language is often used figuratively in the Old Testament prophets. For example, this language is sometimes used to symbolize God bringing historical judgments upon nations and upon their rulers. Heavenly bodies such as the sun, the moon and the stars are sometimes used to symbolize kings and kingdoms. And astronomical disturbances are often used in the prophets to symbolize God's historical judgments falling upon his enemies and the enemies of his people. As God, in effect, turns out their lights and turns their world, their cosmos, upside down. By using this kind of picturesque language in verses 24 and 25, I suggested to you that our Lord Jesus is intending to picture God's soon coming judgment upon an apostate first century Israel and a corrupt religious leadership that had rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah and would sadly end up murdering him. By using this cosmic upheaval language, Jesus is utilizing the well-known language and imagery of the Old Testament prophets, and he's using it to underscore the severity of God's judgment upon apostate Israel as that judgment would be experienced by them in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Again, it would appear that our Lord Jesus is following in the footsteps of the Old Testament prophets by using this figurative language to communicate that the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple would be like lights out for apostate Israel and its godless leaders. It will be the end of their universe. But what about this imagery of Christ coming on the clouds and the lesson of the fig tree and the language about uh, God sending out his angels to gather in the elect from the four corners of the earth? How are we to understand that language? Well, friends, let us now turn our attention to this section of our Lord's Olivet Discourse. And if you're following along in your sermon outline, this is my first main point Beloved, let us consider the significance of Christ as the Son of Man coming in the clouds and the gathering in of the elect. Let us consider the significance of Christ as the Son of Man coming in the clouds and the gathering in of the elect. Let me again read for you verses 26 and 27. The Lord Jesus says this. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. Now, again, many of our fellow Bible believing Christians today, including 
some very sound Orthodox Bible scholars would say, surely this language has got to be referring to the second coming of Christ. Again, there are other scripture passages where similar language is used, where it's clear that the authors of those other passages are clearly referring to the second coming of Christ. And, and again, while I believe that, uh, let me just say that while I believe that much of of this passage here in the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled in the first century, I do affirm, as does as do all Orthodox churches throughout the world, that Jesus will return again in glory at the end of this age and that the Bible does indeed teach the glorious future second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But how are we to understand this language? And doesn't this language clearly point to our Lord's second coming? But again, if that is the case, then we're presented with a problem. You see, I would suggest to you that in verse 30, Jesus tells us that all of these things took place within the first Christian generation. And so if, and again, there's different understandings of what Jesus means here by this generation. Uh, Some evangelical commentators uh, suggest that it really should be understood as this race, meaning that the Jewish race will continue until uh, the end of this present age. Others uh, seek to suggest that, well, there's sort of a lot of double fulfillment going on here and and multiple horizons of fulfillment that uh, that Christ has in view here so that verse 30 can be understood in such a way as to uh, absolve Jesus from making a false prediction. But friends, uh, and we'll talk more about that and the meaning of verse 30 and 31 a little bit more on the next Lord's Day. But let me just for now suggest to you that uh, the, the plain, simple uh, in meaning of this text is when Jesus says this generation will not pass away. What does he mean by this generation? Simple. He means this generation. And when he says all these things, what does he mean by all these things? Well, again, simple. The plain, literal interpretation is all these things, all the things that he's been speaking of up until this point. So think about the think about the problem that that presents us with. If Jesus in verses 26 and 27 is predicting his parousia, his final advent, his second advent at the end of this age, then Jesus made a false prediction because Jesus did not return within that generation. And if Jesus made a false prediction then by the standard of Deuteronomy 18, Jesus was a false prophet. And if Jesus was a false prophet, then he's not the Son of God, he's not our Savior, and we are still lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. But friends, I do not believe that Jesus is a false prophet. I do not believe that Jesus made a mistake. I believe that he meant precisely what he says here. So that being the case, how are we to understand this language? Well, let's kind of turn, turn over every rock and try to understand these verses. Let's focus especially on verses 26 and 27. Jesus says in verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, Son of Man, what is Jesus referring to when he's referring to the Son of Man? If you've studied the gospel accounts, you know that that this title, Son of Man, is our Lord's favorite title for himself. 
It's a messianic title. Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is divine. He is true God. But he's also true, excuse me, true man. He is the God man. But this title, Son of Man, derives from a prophecy in the book of Daniel, as we'll see in a few moments. So Jesus, in using the title Son of Man for himself, he is making a veiled claim to be the Messiah because the Son of Man figure in the book of Daniel was a divine messianic figure. And Jesus says they will see the Son of Man doing what? Coming in clouds. Now, what's the significance of these clouds? If you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that the clouds often show up at uh, important points in redemptive history. What do the clouds uh, represent? Well, often they represent the divine presence, God's special uh, saving presence. For example, remember when the Israelites were uh, rescued by God from their slavery in Egypt and they were brought through the Red Sea on dry land and they were brought to Mount Sinai? We read of a cloud, a supernaturally uh, a supernaturally uh, given cloud, a theophany, if you will, a, a supernatural cloud sign of God's special presence as God guided and protected his people. And it was a cloud that attended with them throughout their wilderness wanderings. This cloud of this pillar of a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that hovered over the tabernacle, indicating God's presence with his people. And of course, when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, after, uh, after Peter uh, wakes up and sees what's going on, and what does Peter say? You remember, the, you remember the account? Peter, who can't seem to keep his mouth shut, he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Shall I make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah? And then a cloud overshadows or uh, engulfs uh, Peter and the other apostles with him on that Mount of Transfiguration, as God the Father says to them, this is my son, my beloved son, listen to him. Or of course, and of course, we know that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended into the clouds as his disciples witnessed him go up into heaven. So again, the cloud imagery is a sign of God's Presence. The Son of Man title is a reference to Jesus as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Promised Messiah. The clouds are a symbol of God's presence. Now, verse 26 is a reference to the prophecy of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Let's turn back in our Old Testaments to Daniel chapter 7 and look at verses 13 and 14. And this is what Jesus is referring to when he says these words in verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Jesus is there referring to this Daniel prophecy in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And this should give us a clue to what Jesus is referring to. Look at this prophecy, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, as the prophet Daniel writes the following. And here he's describing this vision that he has. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came where he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, friends, it's important to notice that this prophecy of Daniel is not predicting the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, this prophecy of Daniel 7, 13 and 14 predicts the Messiah's ascension in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, which is Daniel's way of referring to God the Father. And this passage also describes our Lord's coronation as King of Kings, as he is given dominion over all of the nations. Again, this does not predict our Lord's descent from heaven on the clouds, which will take place at his future second advent, as many mistakenly interpret this passage to mean. And this is significant because it appears that the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, which our Lord Jesus refers to in verse 26 of our passage, is not a prophecy of the second coming. If that is the case, then when Jesus says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, he is predicting his ascension into heaven. Again, the direction is not from heaven to earth on the clouds, but rather from the earth to the heavens. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days and is presented before the Ancient of Days and is given from the Ancient of Days. He is given dominion over all of the nations. So this refers to the ascension and the coronation and the session of Christ at the Father's right hand. Now, and so since Jesus is referring to this Daniel prophecy in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, I would suggest to you that Jesus is not using this language to predict his second coming, but to predict his ascension into heaven, his reign at the Father's right hand, and the implications of that heavenly session, that heavenly reign. Now, friends, one of the most powerful proofs to the early Christian church that Jesus, as the messianic son of man, had indeed taken up his throne in heaven to reign over the nations. One of the strongest proofs to the early Christians that Jesus, who had been taken up from them into heaven, was indeed reigning as king of kings and lord of lords, was indeed the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which Jesus carried out from his throne in heaven through the instrumentality of the Roman general Titus and his Roman armies. But pastor, it says in verse 26 that they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Doesn't this language of seeing the Son of Man indicate the future second advent when all humanity will see Jesus returning on the clouds of heaven to earth? And indeed, there's, there's other passages of Scripture that indicate that when Jesus returns at the end of this age, he will indeed return on the glory clouds and all humanity will see him when he returns. But think about this, friends. Even in the English language, we use the, the language of sight, of seeing, in more, than just, uh, in more than just one way. Sometimes when we talk about seeing something, we're obviously referring to our eyesight. You know, I saw a great comet in the sky last night, we might say. But at other times, we, we use that term in a more figurative sense. Let me just give you an illustration. 
One of the things that, uh, that you should probably know about your pastor, or not that you should know, but one thing that I will confess to you is that I am terrible at math. I uh, struggled mightily with math in, in high school and, and so forth. And let's say that I, your mathematically challenged pastor, that I'm trying to figure out a math problem. And I'm just clueless. I can't figure out how to make, uh, how to solve this problem, how to make it work. Now, let's say that you are gifted at mathematics and you come along and you see me struggling to figure out this math problem and you explain to me how I can solve the problem. And when it finally, when I finally have a mathematical epiphany, when I finally get it through my thick skull, how to solve the mathematical problem, I might say something like, oh, now I see what you're saying. In other words, now I understand. Now I perceive what you are saying. And so, friends, if Jesus is referring to his ascension uh, to the right hand of the Father in verse 26, then when Jesus uses this language that they will see the Son of Man, see is being used here, I believe, in the sense that they will perceive that he is indeed reigning at the Father's right hand. If the interpretation I'm offering here is correct, it is in this sense that they are said to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Christ is seen to be truly ascended to God the Father, the Ancient of Days, and truly reigning in glory at the Father's right hand. He is seen to be in such a position by the fulfillment of his prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction. Christ's heavenly reign was seen in the sense of perceived and understood in his sovereign orchestration of historical events that led up to the judgment destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which again took place 40 years after Jesus had predicted its destruction. It took place in 70 AD. But what about, some might say, well, wait a minute, Let's go on to verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus talks about the angels being sent forth to gather the elect from the four winds. Verse 27. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the furthest end of earth to the furthest end of heaven. Surely that's got to be referring to Jesus' return at his second advent when he will send out his angels and gather in his elect into the kingdom, that we will all uh, be rap- uh, we'll all be raptured, quote unquote, if we're still alive when our Lord returns, or the dead will be raised, and the angels will present uh, the righteous before the Lord on that final day. Well, so what about this reference to angels gathering in the elect? Well, the Greek term for angel, angelos, can literally be translated as messenger. Now, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes in Scripture, this term is used to refer to uh, beings that we typically refer to as angels. These glorious heavenly spirit beings who are typically referred to as angels, who are uh, agents serving God and sent forth by God to serve God's people. It's interesting, these spirit beings... These heavenly spirit beings are often called angels precisely because they are heavenly messengers sent from God to serve his people and to bring God's word to his people. Oftentimes in scripture, the angels are sent by God as agents of his revelation to give new revelation from the Lord to his people. But friends, that's not the only way the term 
angelos in the Greek can be used. Here, in the context of our Lord's Olivet Discourse, the term could be understood as referring not to spirit, heavenly spirit beings, heavenly messengers, but rather to human messengers. And if that is the case, Jesus is predicting the Great Commission. He's predicting the spread of the gospel. He's referring to angels in the sense of preachers and missionaries and evangelists and witnesses who go into the world and preach the gospel and gather in the, in the elect to his church and kingdom through their preaching of the gospel. So I would suggest to you, beloved, that that is a correct way to understand what Jesus is predicting here. After all, after Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church, what happened then? The gospel went out as Jesus said it would and as he commanded his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Read the book of Acts as the gospel goes, not only into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Friends, what are some of the takeaways, some of the uh, lessons or applications that we can glean from our consideration of this particular section of our passage? Well, first of all, there's many lessons we can learn, but I would suggest a couple points. Friends, the good news of all of this, whether you agree with the interpretation I've offered or not, the good news is that the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, does indeed reign. He reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. One day everyone will recognize His reign. One day everyone will acknowledge His Lordship. For the Word of God teaches us in Philippians that on that final day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear listener, let me ask you, Have you acknowledged His sovereign reign? Have you bowed before His Lordship? We're told in Scripture in passages like Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your lips, Jesus is what? Jesus is Lord. Not only that He's divine, but that He's the sovereign King over all creation. If you confess with your lips, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be Saved. That is God's promise. Dear listener, have you confessed Jesus Christ as your very own Lord and Savior? Do you trust in Him and Him alone for salvation from your sins? Another takeaway is that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to our risen, ascended, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And reigning from His throne in glory, Christ is indeed orchestrating all events of human history, and he's orchestrating them in such a way that they will serve his sovereign purposes. God is indeed carrying out his sovereign plan within history through uh, the messianic reign of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that reign will be consummated when Jesus returns at the end of this age in glory and takes us to be with himself. In the meantime, our risen, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus Christ has given to us his church a commission to proclaim his gospel to all the nations. So we as a church, we have a messenger function. We have an angelic function. We as churches of Jesus Christ are to serve as angels of God in the sense of messengers 
bearing witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us as a church seek to fulfill our angelic messenger role by taking the gospel to our neighbors and to the world. But what about this lesson of the fig tree that Jesus then brings up? Verses 28 and 29, and we'll wrap it up here with the consideration of these verses. Jesus, after speaking about cosmic upheavals, after speaking about the, uh, the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds and the gathering of the elect from the four corners, the four winds, Jesus then says in verse 28, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, these things meaning the things that Jesus has been speaking of up until this point, recognize that he is near right at the door. One commentator uh, writes the following. He says, perhaps Jesus stood near a fig tree. Because these trees produced two crops each year, they became proverbial for the passing of the seasons. Unlike many trees in Israel, the fig tree, the fig sheds its leaves each fall. New leaves appear relatively late in spring and indicate that warm weather is about to arrive. It's also interesting to note, beloved, if you, if you know the Old Testament, that, that Israel is sometimes depicted in Scripture as a fig tree. The Bible uh, was uh, God addressed his people in an agricultural setting and God in the scriptures often uses agricultural imagery to symbolize his people or truths that are uh, connected to his people. And if Jesus is using this fig tree illustration in the sense uh, in that sense here to refer to Israel symbolized by the fig tree then Jesus may be indicating that when these signs appear then the apostate Israel that had rejected him as the Messiah will indeed be ripe for judgment. The signs spoken of in this passage were to be clear indications that God was about to put out the lights on an old covenant apostate Judaism that had rejected and crucified the Messiah sent to her. If that is the case, what should we learn from the fig tree illustration that Jesus uses? Well, I think this confronts us with the all-important question. What will you do with Jesus Christ? We know what the majority of the Jewish community and the Jewish religious authorities in the first century did with the Lord Jesus. The majority, there was a faithful remnant that God had chosen by grace among the Jews in the first century. But most of the Jewish community and most of the Jewish religious authorities rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. Like apostate first century Israel and its religious leaders, will you reject him? Or like the faithful remnant in those days, will you, by sovereign grace, receive him and confess him? Dear friends, let us not be like Israel of old. Let us not be like first century Israel. They had the Son of God incarnate in their presence. They saw Him do miracles. They heard Him preach the Gospel. And yet, the majority of them rejected Him. And even after He rose from the dead and the good news of His resurrection was proclaimed, what did the religious leaders, according to Matthew's Gospel, what did they do when they got news 
from the soldiers who had guarded the tomb that Jesus rose from the dead. They bribed the soldiers and they tried to create a conspiracy theory to cover up the good news of the resurrection. Their hearts were given over to hardness. May God in his sovereign mercy grant that our hearts may not be hardened like the hearts of the first century religious leaders. May we, by the grace of God, repent and receive and rest upon Christ and Christ alone as the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. And out of gratitude for God's gift of salvation, may we seek to declare the glad tidings of, good, of great joy, the good news that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. He reigns at the Father's right hand. And let us warn the nations that He is coming back to judge all of humanity. Let us urge the nations to ready themselves for that day to repent and turn to Christ. And before we close our time in prayer, I, I do want to say, if any of you are struggling with uh, the interpretation I've offered to you or you want to learn more about that, I, I, w- I do have a book I'd like to uh, recommend to you. Uh, R.C. Sproul's book, The Last Days According to Jesus, is a helpful guide uh, to these kinds of questions. I don't necessarily endorse or agree with everything he says in that book, but uh, if you'd like to study more and learn more about this uh, perspective, uh, Dr. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, gave a very helpful presentation in that book. Friends, let us uh, close our time in prayer. Gracious Lord and Father in heaven, sovereign and eternal God, we do thank you that Jesus, our Savior, reigns, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that one day he is returning in glory to set all things right and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. In the meantime, grant unto us the grace to bear faithful witness uh, to his reign. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Let's close our time together by rising and singing our closing hymn, number 286, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, 286.